Okay, thanks everybody. Uh, and uh, let's go ahead and get started. Uh, ceremonially, I often thank people who, who come out on a cold night and thank you very much for coming out tonight. It's very nice of you to come out tonight for this, which is the beginning of our public lecture series for the semester. Uh, for those of you who don't know, this lecture series, the public lecture series, is for members of both the university and town communities and can be read about in local newspapers, including Town Topics, US One, and of course our website, lectures.princeton.edu. Uh, I'm Sam Wong, and I'm chair of the Public Lectures Committee and faculty in neuroscience, uh, and I'm very pleased to have uh, this as our first of the semester. We have many interesting talks for the semester, um, including uh, tonight's speaker, uh, Simon Winchester, Andrew Sullivan, Percy Diaconis, uh, Anna Devere Smith, John Waters, Eric Lander. So we have a lot of very interesting people coming this semester. Um, now, my official job is to tell you about the sponsor of this. The sponsor of this series tonight is Mr. Spencer Trask of the class of 1866. Uh, Mr. Trask was one of Thomas Edison's original backers and bequested uh, a lecture series on subjects of a general interest. And upon his death, an additional bequest was made. And the series has been in existence for quite a long time, uh, about 100 years. Just to give you a sense of how, who's spoken in this series before, we've had um, we. Uh, the Public Lectures Committee has had uh, Niels Bohr, Arnold Toynbee, Bertrand Russell, and Margaret Mead, just to give you a few examples. Um, and this semester, we're going to be having uh, three speakers, uh, tonight's speaker, as well as Anna Devere Smith and John Waters. So that just gives you a sense of the breadth of this series. Um, tonight's speaker will be introduced by my colleague, Professor Brian Kernahan. Thanks, Sam, and uh, let me also express my uh, appreciation for people who come out braving the icy uh, sidewalks and things like that. Um, it's my great pleasure tonight uh, to introduce the evening's public lecture speaker, uh, Simon Winchester. Simon studied geology at St. Catherine's College, Oxford. Um, he spent a brief period as a professional geologist in Uganda, uh, but quickly switched in what he describes as a Pauline conversion uh, to journalism. He spent years in northern Ireland, in Washington, during Watergate, uh, in India, and even briefly in the Falklands. He managed to fit in a few months in Argentina as well in a prison in Tierra del Fiego because he uh, was unfortunate enough to be in Patagonia at the wrong time. He then went on to spend 12 years in China, leaving that just at the time when Hong Kong was returned to mainland China, and, and then he moved to the United States, and he lives now in the United States. He's the author of a large number of really great books. Uh, some of these, uh, given his academic background, um, have a geological slant. For example, there's one on the eruption of Krakatoa in 1883. There's uh, one on the San Francisco earthquake of 1906. Um, I've read essentially everything he's written for a long time. Um, and if I had to pick uh, one of his books that was my favorite, it would be actually quite a tough choice. But I think perhaps I would pick this one, um, The Professor and the Madman. Uh, <laughs> it's a, <laughs> you get the idea. <laughs> um, the Professor and the Madman, it's, it's a wonderful story about the, the making of the Oxford English Dictionary and about one of its major contributors, um, a doctor who was uh, in the American Civil War. Uh, it disturbed his mind greatly. He was in England, went mad, killed somebody, and was confined for the rest of his life to the uh, Broadmoor uh, Criminal Lunatic Asylum, but managed to contribute very, very many citations to the Oxford English Dictionary. Um, 
Simon's most recent book, not the one that will be published later this year, but the one that is published and actually available today, uh, is The Man Who Loved China. It tells the story of Joseph Needham, who was a truly eccentric uh, Cambridge scholar who perhaps single-handedly changed the world's perception of China. And that's the topic of Simon's lecture tonight. Please join me in welcoming Simon Winchester. Well, thank you very much indeed. And um, I suppose what I should do, first of all, is to uh, rather demonstrably say thank you so much, everybody, for coming out in the snow. Um, th this story begin, begins for me about 15 years ago when I was writing a book about uh, the Yangtze. And I took off uh, about a year to travel um, the 4,000 miles or so from the East China Sea where it debouches near Shanghai up to Tibet where it rises. And um, when I came back to New York to, to write about it, I got rather stuck in one chapter about the Three Gorges. Uh, many of you may have been to the Three Gorges where the river is squeezed between a number of mountain chains um, in eastern Sichuan and becomes an extremely ferocious stream for about four or 500 miles, very scenically beautiful, but very difficult to navigate up. And power navigation, which was introduced in 1902, answered the problems of getting upstream, but I was wondering how on earth did people navigate in junks up the Yangtze before they had power to do so. The junks clearly had to be very light, very capacious, very nimble to get up over the rapids and against this ferocious stream. So I was talking in New York to someone who knew about boats and I said, where can I find some drawings or some diagrams of the kind of um, Ming or Qing dynasty um, junks from the Yangtze. And he said, well, there are two obvious, uh, obvious books to buy. Um, one is The Junks and Sampans of the Yangtze by G.R.G. Worcester, which is published in um, Annapolis in Maryland in the 1940s. Or the other, other one is um, volume four, part three of Science and Civilization in China by Joseph Needham. Now, I'd heard of neither of these books and neither of these authors, but I think that conversation took place on a, on a Friday, and we have a little house up, up in the Berkshires, and the next day, a Saturday, I was in Salisbury, Connecticut, where there was what I think is one of the finest bookstores in America, called Lion's Head Books, owned by a man called Mike McCabe, who was an old-fashioned bookseller, the classic kind of, he knew everything about every book that had ever been published. The bookstore is defunct, sad to say, but Mike is not. Um, but I went to see him on this Saturday morning and I said, Mike, I've got two rather obscure books. And I wonder whether you might at least know where I can get them. And he said, try me. And I said, well, um, the first one, The Junks and Sampans of the Yangtze. And he said, oh, G.R.G. Worcester. And I said, yes. He said, oh, we normally have that in stock. And he, he reached up to an upper shelf. And there's going to be a bit of show and tell here. Here, indeed, it is for, I think, $25, um, Junks and Sampans of the Yangtze. So I said, Mike, you're amazing. He said, what's the other one? And he said, I said, well, the other one, it's um, Science and Civilization in China, Volume 4, Part 3. And he said, you mean Joseph Needham? And I said, 
I think I do. And he, his expression changed completely. He, he started to look at me as if I was something uh, the cat had dragged into his store. And he said, are you meaning to tell me you've never heard of Joseph Needham? And I said, I'm terribly sorry, Mike, I haven't. And he said, well, you, you ought to be totally ashamed of yourself because <laughs> Needham, as, as you mentioned in your introduction, more than any single individual managed to change the West's perception of China. He was this remarkable, he was an Englishman, and he lived, must have died fairly recently, I think, he said, um, and there are about 20 volumes. It's absolutely massive. We, we never see complete sets, and if we did, it would be many thousands of dollars, but we occasionally get single volumes. And I think I remember, he said, seeing one come in a couple of years ago, and I think I may still have it. And he disappeared like the white rabbit down into his basement and came up a few moments later with, and this is the other part of the show and tell, with this, and he <laughs> blew off the dust, and he said, yes, Needham, Science and Civilization in China, Volume 4, Part 3, the very one that I wanted. So this was $75, this was $25, so for $100, I was re-energized in my belief that Mike McCabe is the finest bookseller in America, but I had exactly what I wanted. So I gave him a check, or whatever it was, and then went out to the car, and I it was fairly obvious what Junks and Sampans of the Yangtze was going to be about, but this, Volume 4, Part 3, it was entitled Nautics. Still got his post-it note, $75. So it was Nautics, and I looked at it, and it was 900 and 964 pages long. Everything you could possibly want to know about China's relationship with water so it was everything to do with the design of canals and lock gates and rudders and lighthouses and the compass and navigation charts. And indeed, it had the diagrams of the Ming and Qing dynasty uh, junks that I wanted. So it was exactly what I wanted and more so. But I sat in the car looking at this book and thought to myself, who on earth put this book together? because this is biblical in authority and scope. And yet, this was, if what Mike had said was to be believed, just one of perhaps 20 volumes devoted to other subjects like astronomy and uh, biology and chemistry and ceramics and metallurgy. And everything was there. Who on earth put this all together? And I vowed that sooner or later, I'd never at that stage in my career written a biography of anybody, that I would try and get to grips with this remarkable person, Joseph Needham. Well, the years went by and I wrote other books, but about three years ago when I was realizing that 2008 would be the year of the Beijing or Peking Olympics, I thought that would be an appropriate time to have a stab at writing about this extraordinary person because it would enable me to tell something about uh, the story of China as well. So I had learned that the, that the keeper of the Needham flame was an institute in Cambridge called the Needham Research Institute. And I wrote to them and I said, look, I'm not a, a sinologist. I, I don't speak Chinese. I've been to China a great deal. Um, but I'm fascinated by your man Needham. And you've got all his papers and uh, you can open the door into his life. Might you allow me to do it? Well, as it happened, Chris Cullen, who is the director, um, had read The Professor and the Madman and thought that popularizing a somewhat 
remote academic figure like James Murray, who was the editor of the OED, um, was something that he would like to see done for his hero, Joseph Needham. So he talked to the trustees about it, and I think they weren't totally enamored of the idea. I think they would have rather have had a sinologist do it, but in the end, they, they agreed. And so uh, 2006, I went over to Cambridge and I started doing research on this extraordinary man. And he was every bit as extraordinary as the books he wrote. He, he was born in London in, in 1900, although how he was conceived was a matter of some astonishment because his parents cordially loathed one another. His father had been married before. He was also called Joseph um, Needham. He was a doctor or an anesthesiologist. We call them anesthetists in Britain. Um, his second wife, he was a rather austere sort of fellow. Um, his second wife was, as far as one can see, completely mad. She, she drank to excess. She sang at inappropriate moments. She fought bitterly. The amount of crockery that was broken, apparently, in the Needham household was, was prodigious. She was French-Irish, which I'm sure had nothing to do with this, this <laughs> apparent madness. How they managed to settle down for the requisite 20 minutes or so that procreation demands, I do not know. But they must have done sometime around the Easter of, uh, of 1900, because just before Christmas, there was born to them this boy child. They disagreed vehemently over what he should be named. Father wanted him to be called Noel because he was born at Christmas time. Uh, mother, because of uh, some Irish reason, uh, wanted him to be called Terence. Uh, in the end, they called him Noel Joseph Terence Montgomery Needham, and he decided, essentially in a spirit of filial compromise, to call himself Joseph. Well, it was a peculiar household to grow up in. There were no other children. He was looked after by a rather gloomy French governess up in the attic of their house in Clapham in southwest London. But his father was actually, he was austere, yes, but he was, a, he was very keen that the young boy should be educated, particularly in the ways of the world and in languages. Clearly having a French governess gave him a head start in French, but he took him all over Europe with him. And one of the results of this, and that Needham had this extraordinary photographic memory, is that by the time he was nine or ten, he could speak or read or write uh, seven languages. Um, the, the Latin and Greek, I mean, didn't speak those, but wrote and read Latin and Greek, and French and German and Spanish, and also peculiarly um, Russian and Polish, which was no mean achievement for a, for a small boy. He also learned other things from, from his father, uh, which would stand him in quite good stead later on in life. He, he learned how to drive steam railway engines. He, his father was very interested in railway trains, and so he would take him to stations and persuade engine drivers to let him work on the, on the railway trains. He also had this very peculiar friend uh, called Sir John uh, Bland Sutton, who was a, uh, he was a surgeon of some repute in London and, and, and had great friends, Rudyard Kipling being one of them, and so Kipling would come to the house. But, but Bland Sutton, among other things, he invented the hysterectomy. And uh, he would invite young Joseph to uh, come and help him, pay him a, a guinea a time to help in operations, handing him needles and catgut and things. And this gave young Joseph uh, something of an insight into the, the nether parts of women, which was to stand him in 
very good stead later in life, um, as I will attempt to explain. Also, Bland Sutton has a peculiar side interest in the, in, in the lemur, the, the Madagascan primate. I'm sure you all know about lemurs. Perhaps you don't know that lemurs have a predisposition to, to cataracts. And uh, so Bland Sutton used to perform surgery on afflicted uh, lemurs, pro bono, one imagines, and would invite young Joseph to take part in these operations as well. So by the age of 13 or so, when he went up to Aundel School um, to get away from the impending outbreak of World War I, he knew seven languages. He could drive railway trains. He knew a great deal about the inner workings of women and about the arrangements of ocularly challenged lemurs. So he was in, clearly set for something quite, quite important. His father also would, would tape up um, little mantras on whatever the equivalent of post-it notes were in those days, little sayings. One of them has lingered with me ever since, which uh, never go upstairs empty-handed. I, I find I can't find stairs anywhere. With, I've got to carry something up them. Um, you can catch more flies with honey than with vinegar. Um, never have three helpings of anything. Um, when he went up to school, his headmaster was a remarkable educationalist called F.W. Sanderson, the headmaster of Andal. Um, so important a figure that actually his own biography was written by H.G. Wells, so he was clearly something of a, of a teacher. And he said to young Joseph, another of the, these mantras, my boy, don't concern yourself with the pettifogging, the small, think big, think in oceans. And that, as you'll see also, I think, remained with, with Needham for most of his life. So he, not all too surprisingly, was a very bright boy. He could take his pick of what universities in England he went to and finally agreed that he would go to Keyes College, Cambridge, to read initially medicine. That was the idea. So he went up in 1918. But very soon after getting there, he, uh, he decided, remembering another mantra, the future my boy, said one of his schoolmasters, lies in atoms and molecules. Medicine, I hope there are no doctors here that I'll offend, uh, it, it, it's, it's sort of, it's mechanics, it's not science at all. So six weeks, I think, afterwards, he, he left medicine and started to read chemistry. And three years later, um, graduated with a tolerably good degree at Keyes, good enough anyway to be allowed to go on and read for a PhD at the newly formed Institute of Biochemistry that had just opened in Cambridge under the leadership of this remarkable man, Frederick Gowland Hopkins, who went on to win the Nobel Prize in, I think, 1928 for the discovery of vitamins, or vitamins, as you say here. So Needham was uh, clearly at a leading edge, bleeding edge, cutting edge sort of place, and he really flourished, and, and he loved it, and he indeed got his PhD and began to settle down to study embryology, how, how a chicken, how an egg uh, turns from this mass of shell and albumin and yolk into feathers and bones and beaks and blood and all that stuff. And he was recognized, I think, at about that time of being clever enough that he was offered a fellowship at, uh, at Keyes College. Keyes is an extremely old college, um, very distinguished, very scientifically distinguished as well. And he was to be offered at the age of 24 a fellowship was 
a remarkable achievement. I mean, it's the equivalent of tenure in this country. He need no longer worry about his, his ac academic future. And he was given a room um, in the central court. I'm sure many of you will know that Keyes is the college that figured in the film um, Chariots of Fire. Um, his room, which he was to occupy for the following 75 years, was in, in the central court, um, room uh, K1, the staircase K, uh, room number one on the ground floor. And you, the marvellous thing about it is that you, uh, it's a sort of illustration of the wonderful continuity of intellectual life at Cambridge, that it was before he occupied it in the 1920s, um, occupied by a very famous uh, zoologist, uh, Sir William Bate Hardy. But when um, Needham died in 1995, it was occupied by the person that occupies it now. And if you go to Keyes as a tourist, you can see um, Stephen Hawking, the, the cosmologist. So K1 was an extremely good room to have. So it was during this period now, so he's got his fellowship, he's, he's done his PhD, he's an expert on, on eggs, that he started to become, or to display the, the eccentricities for which he became very well known in, in later life. Um, the first one, I suppose, isn't really uh, eccentricity, but it was something that marked his life in all sorts of ways. He was partly because of his familiarity with the people that worked on the railways. He was um, extremely left-wing. He, he never joined the, the Communist Party. He was much affected by the Bolshevik Revolution in 1917 when he was a schoolboy and was a socialist, unashamedly a socialist. And and cleaved to socialist principles all of his life, which got him into great trouble in the 1950s, as I hope I'll have time to explain. But at the same time, and this is a, one of the extraordinary things about Needham, who was very much a builder of bridges between his mother and father, between East and West, between China and the outside world, he also was fascinated by uh, the very, what one might call the very antithesis of communism. He was an ardent Christian. And... Uh, so he had to find a church near Cambridge that had left-wing views or would accommodate a person with views as left-wing as his. And he eventually did find a, a church in a village about 12 miles away called Thaxted, where there was a wonderful, a very colourful left-wing priest called Conrad Noel. Um, Noel, um, he was a bit odd too. I mean, he would preach all his sermons with a parrot on his shoulder. And he would do sort of mischievous things like... Uh, raised the flag of Sinn Féin over the uh, steeple of his church as a sort of uh, emblem of solidarity with Irish home rule. And this would cause uh, uh, right-wing swells from Cambridge to come down to try and climb up the steeple to pull it down, this wretched flag, and replace it with the flag of St George. And this would cause problems in the village and the police had to be called and there was rioting and Needham thought this was enormous fun. So... Another perhaps venture into a slightly more eccentric thing, Needham became in the 1920s very much an exponent, a proponent of what in those polite times was known as gymnosophy. I don't know if many of you know what gymnosophy is, but it was, it was the word in those days for nudism. He loved taking his clothes off at every opportunity. He joined the London Gymnosophy Society, which had strong socialist um, roots because the feeling was that if you divested yourself of all your silks and satins you were essentially the same as your 
brother man or minus or plus a bit, you know, with, with your sister, sisters as well. So he joined the Cambridge version of the, of the Gymnosophy Society, which for Americans, it's a slightly odd name. It was called the Moonella Group. So he was a Mooney, as it were. So he did that, taking his clothes off all the time, but also he became very much a follower of Morris dancing. I don't know if, if, if somehow the image begins to grow. I mean, he was, he was a very tall man. He, Morris dancing is a very peculiar sort of pagan ritual dancing. Ugly, you, you put hay or straw and bells around your wrists and ankles. You don't do it naked, as far as, as I know. And you dance to a, a sort of a tuneless dirge played on a pipe. It's most unattractive. But he also um, became a skilled player of the accordion. And someone said, well, thank God, being a, a nudist, he, he didn't play the cymbals. But I said, but, <laughs> but, but the accordion would do exactly the same. I said, only rather more slowly and more, more decorously. He, he was also, uh, this of course isn't, a cha isn't a, an eccentricity, but he was a very keen chain smoker all his life. He smoked, but you remember he lived till he was 95. So, uh, but he always ascribed his long life and being a smoker to the fact that he never smoked until noon of any one day. And there's a clock in the main court. Once again, if you've seen Chariots of Fire, it's the clock that they had to race around the court before it finished striking 12. Well, for him, when, it, when he was sitting in K1, he wouldn't smoke until it had finished striking 12, and then he would light up and smoke like industrial Manchester for the rest of the day. And then the last feature of him, a personal feature, was that he was an inveterate and unapologetic womanizer. He loved women, and women loved him. And I, I, I've interviewed a lot of well, several women now in their 80s and 90s who remember vividly and very warmly being wooed and seduced by Joseph Needham in Cambridge. And not one of them looks back on it with anything but delight. He was a charming, very good looking, he looked a bit like Harry Potter on speed, you know, <laughs> floppy hair, circular little glasses, utterly charming, full of marvelous conversation. And the Institute of Biochemistry, Garland Hopkins Institute, was filled, as someone wrote, with, with clever Jews and talkative young women. Well, he, he loved the Jews, but he really loved the women. And he worked his way serially through all of them, uh, as far as one can see, until finally settling on, on a, a lady called Dorothy Moyle, who was um, from a Quaker family in, uh, in Devon. And um, he was doing his research on, on the egg. Dorothy was doing research on the mechanics of muscles, what happens biochemically when you flex your biceps and triceps. And he thought, he made some remark about, you know, I do the eggs, you do the ham. We're natural for one another. She fell for this line, poor girl. And, um, and they, they courted, as was said in those days, and eventually married. And they married in the chapel of, of, of Keyes College in, in, on Friday, September the 13th, 1925, typical Needham flouting convention. And flouting convention even more, at their reception, he made this speech which somewhat surprised everyone, not least Dorothy, when he said, my dear, um, I don't expect us to be bound by the rather tedious bourgeois conventions of 
marriage. This is going to be a thoroughly modern marriage. And if either of us sees um, possible partners that, that we would like outside the boundaries, then please, Dorothy, feel free, and I shall, I hope you won't mind, feel free to do the same thing. Well, somewhat flabbergasted, Dorothy said nothing at the wedding. And from her diaries, it's pretty evident she never once strayed from the path of marital rectitude, but the same cannot be said for Joseph, who appears to have hit the ground running the moment they came back from, from their honeymoon in, in France. Well, so the late 20s and early 30s sort of unrolled from that point on in a fairly conventional way for the two of them. They were both sort of rather unexceptional, uh, very left-wing, uh, Christian, nudist, accordion-playing, chain-smoking, um, Morris-dancing people. And um, <laughs> he did write Thinking in Oceans, as F.W. Sanderson had said. Um, he did write a three-volume history of chemical embryology, which is an absolutely titanic piece of work, um, available. You can get it on ABE books. It's a remarkable piece of writing. Um, but everything changed. There are two major epiphanies in his life, and everything changed for him with the first of these in 1937, in August 1937, when essentially out of the blue, there arrived in Cambridge to study under Dorothy's supervision for a PhD, a young, diminutive, extremely clever, and rather pretty Chinese woman from Nanjing called Lu Guizhen. And that changed everything. Guizhen had heard of Joseph Needham and Dorothy Needham because she was prominent in left-wing circles in Nanjing, the city in eastern China where she grew up. And Joseph and Dorothy were very big in supporting the anti-fascist side in the Spanish Civil War, which was much written about in China in those days. And so Guizhen, searching for a place to do a PhD, realizing the Institute of Biochemistry was obviously a very interesting place in Cambridge, and the fact that Dorothy and Joseph were acceptably left-wing, she decided to go there, she applied and was accepted. So she got on a boat in the summer of 1937 from Shanghai to London, then took the train up to, uh, to Cambridge, met Dorothy, and then Dorothy said, well, I think you ought to walk along the hall to meet my husband, and she imagined that Joseph would be this rather wizened, bearded, sort of boffin type, but not at all. The door was opened by this ebullient, loud, cheerful Harry Potter on amphetamine-type figure. And he saw her and was instantly enraptured by her. And she, apparently, by him. And they began a long, long affair. Now, Joseph kept the most meticulous diaries, and he had a beautiful um, hand, so they're all eminently readable. And you can read the progress of this affair, which is decorous in the late uh, 1937, but it really, it, it was not consummated until February 1938. And I'm going to linger slightly on the day of the consummation, not for prurient reasons, but just because it, it is the, the turning point in the story, really. Um, it was the 17th of February 1938. And on this day, um, First of all, whenever Joseph made a reference to his wife, Dorothy, in his diaries, 
he also, he always, for some extraordinary reason, wrote about her in Greek. So it took me ages, because I don't read Greek, um, to find out he had written in the first line of this day, uh, Dorothy to Babacom. Babacom is the village in Devon that she came from. So I'm sure it's the first and only time in its history that the word Babacom has been written in Greek, but there it was. So what he had obviously done was he had persuaded her to go down to Devon, 250 miles away, to visit her parents, leaving the coast clear. So here he is alone in Cambridge with the love of his life, Lou Grey Jen. So the first thing he does is he takes her to the opening of a film which has just um, opened in England and indeed in Cambridge, and that was um, Pearl S. Buck's The Good Earth. And you can sort of imagine for a young Chinese girl far from home that to go and see this rather sentimental film about her homeland would make her nostalgic perhaps, and if you were somewhat cynical, might also make her somewhat pliant. Well, banking on this, Joseph then took her to a restaurant, the most expensive uh, Italian restaurant in Cambridge, and he kept everything. And so the only reason I know this is not only the diary, but all the receipts are there. So clearly the two of them went to dinner that evening in February evening in Cambridge. You can imagine the gas lights, and, uh, rather romantic. And wine was taken in fairly considerable quantities, according to the bill. They then repaired to his room, K1, Stephen Hawking's room to be, at Keys. And then in the diary, there are three asterisks. Now, to a person of a normally prurient imagination, that suggests that something happened. Maybe something happened three times, but something unmentionable happened. But it's not so much that that I found interesting. It's what appears immediately after the three asterisks. And that in Joseph's hand, first of all in pencil, and then once he gains confidence committed to pen, is the first ever Chinese character. That Joseph Needham ever writes. Now, I'm going to ask, there may be people in this room who have read my book. Um, please do not answer if you have. But those of you that don't, I'd love to ask you what you think that first character might be. If I can repeat the scenario, he's taken to a movie, Italian restaurant, three asterisk event has taken place, then he writes something in Chinese. Would anyone like to hazard a guess at what it might be? Victory, that's a, I've never heard that before. I've, <laughs> most people say love, you know, I as in wo hai ni, uh, but no, it was not victory. Uh, anybody else? All right, well, I'll, I'll let you out of your, your misery. Um, it wasn't clouds and rain, which is the Chinese way of writing about sex in, in China colloquially. It was something much more prosaic. It was the character for cigarette. <laughs> and when, once you know that, it all fits into place because he, he smoked player's navy cut. And you can just imagine, especially if those of you who have seen now Voyager will recognize the moment. He, the three asterisk event is over. He reaches to his bedside table, takes his pack of navy cut, takes two cigarettes, lights them both, passes one to Grey Jen, inhales, exhales, and then holds this cylinder of tobacco and rolls it between finger and thumb and turns to Grey Jen and says, my dear, how do I write this in Chinese? And she 
shows him. And he said at that moment, it was like a door opened into an utterly alien universe. I stepped through it into the glittering crystalline world of Chinese ideographic writing. And I was never to be the same person again. And he wasn't. Everything at that point changed. He was like a child, Guizhen said. He had such enthusiasm, such energy to learn this language. He learned it from her, reading and writing. And the professor of Chinese at uh, Cambridge at the time was a man called Gustav Haloun, who I believe was from Czechoslovakia, it might have been Hungary. Um, and the two of them forced, persuaded, a very eager Joseph to learn Chinese, such that by, and he was so, he had a brilliant photographic memory. And by 1940, 41, he could read and write with near total fluency, at least 5,000 characters, which would mean he, any book, any newspaper, he could, with fair dispatch, he, he could read it. His accent was a bit peculiar because she was from Nanjing and he was from Czechoslovakia. So how he spoke Chinese was, was, was perhaps questionable. But he loved the language. I mean, his love affair with the language was very deep, very profound. And through the language, not only did he love Guizhen, but he loved China. Well, leaving him at that point for a moment, this is now 1940-41, so there he is in Cambridge, still teaching biochemistry and doing research on embryology, but fascinated by, by China. Just consider the situation of China in the world at that time in world history, 1940-41. I think it's fair to say that most countries in the West regarded China then as a country that once had been hugely important in in the world, but was no longer. It was peripheral to human civilization. Um, Emerson had called China this booby nation, a country that was good only for ceramics and silk and, and rhubarb uh, and tea. They made the tea while the business of the world went on. In addition to this, Ever since the Opium Wars in 1841, foreign powers had been nibbling away at China. The British, of course, taken Hong Kong. We got treaty rights all up and down the coast. Our ships were using, using the Yangtze. Um, the French had taken Cochin China, had taken Hainan Island and the southern part of China. The Germans had the Shandong Peninsula, the Russians and later the Japanese in, in Manchuria. Then in 1910, 1911, you had the revolution. Then the period of warlordism. Then a civil war between Chiang Kai-shek's nationalists and Mao Zedong's communists. Then since 1937, there had been a full-scale invasion of China. Most of the eastern third of China was occupied by the Japanese. I mean, China was a basket case at this time. Well, one of the things that I didn't realize, and which, which bears a lot on this, the development of this story, is what had happened to Chinese universities during the time of the Japanese occupation. The Japanese were particularly hostile to Chinese intellectual establishments. They would deliberately sack and pillage them, and they would use them for hospitals or brothels or barracks. But the 
to their great and lasting credit, the Chinese universities in Peking and in Shanghai and in Nanjing and places like that didn't just give up and play dead. They, in a concerted and very courageous effort, these universities packed up their blackboards and their books and their Bunsen burners and the faculty and the students went off to the West. On mules and trains, if they could get them, they walked over hundreds, if not thousands of miles of central China and re-established themselves as refugee universities in the relatively safe cities of the West in places like Chengdu and Kunming and Chongqing. Well, in 1940-41, an emissary was sent from these universities, these refugee universities, to Britain to say, look, we are dying here. Chinese intellectual life is dying. We're pinned in by the Himalayas and Tibet to our west, by the Japanese to our east. We can get no supplies, no visiting professors, no textbooks, no academic papers. There is, however, an air bridge occupied by the Allied forces, the hump, as it was called, largely flown by American aircraft from Calcutta to Kunming. Could you possibly arrange that you could send material that we'd so desperately need such that our universities can be supplied with all the kind of things that you take for granted in the West, but which we desperately need here in Western China? Well, this plea, which was very eloquently stated by a visiting professor who came to Oxford and Cambridge and London, was eventually heard by Churchill himself. And Churchill wrote a memo saying, yes, it must be done. China and her intellectual life must not be allowed to die. And so a committee was formed to find a person to be sent out as a diplomat to China to find out what was needed and to tell the British government what was to be sent to Calcutta, put on the planes. And the person they decided to send was not a career diplomat at all, but was this ebullient biochemist in Cambridge, Joseph Needham. It was an eccentric decision of the committee, but it turned out to be absolutely right. So he was appointed a diplomat. He took leave, indefinite leave of absence from Keyes College, and made to travel to China to be a counselor in the British Embassy in what was then the capital city of China, which was Chongqing, or Chongqing, as it was called then. Incidentally, the world's biggest city today. Many people have not heard of it. 38 million people live in Chongqing. It is a gigantic, gigantic city. So he was appointed and told in 1942 to make himself ready to get on a convoy in Liverpool, which would eventually take him across to Calcutta. First of all, he decided he would go and see Gui Zhen, who at this stage had gone off to America and was teaching at Columbia University. So he came over on the flying boat service from Ireland to Brazil and then eventually up to the Hudson, very convoluted route you had to take to get across the Atlantic in those days. And he found her in her little flat in the northern part of, uh, of Manhattan and she was delighted. She said, so this love affair you've had with China, it's now going to be, as it were, consummated. You're going to go there. Well, I just want to say one thing to you, Joseph. You Westerners have this arrogant belief that you are intellectually superior, that you created civilization, 
and that we are merely peripheral to it. I've heard all this before. I know it's not true. I know that rather than being on the periphery of civilization, we in China actually invented most of civilization. So what I want you to do, you're to promise me as my lover, is when you travel around China, do so with an open mind. Just divest yourself of this West, Western cultural construct that you are the best. We are at least equal to you. Keep, please, I implore you, an open mind. And he promised that he would. So he went back to England, got on a, a convoy which went through around the coast of South Africa, eventually turned up in Calcutta, and he waited for orders. And eventually, in March 1943, he was put on a plane where the second epiphany of his life took place. 17th of March, 1943, he flew, he was given an army uniform, he was given a gun, I mean, he never held a gun in his life, but he was told he was going into a war zone. Put on a plane from Dum Dum Airport in Calcutta, refueling stop in Assam, landed in Kunming. Stayed with the British consul, a man called Ogden, and he wrote in his diary of going for a walk that afternoon, and it was a crisp, early spring day, just sky was just eggshell blue, the distant mountains of Tibet were covered with, with snow still. The houses had the, all, everything about China was as he expected. Everyone was dressed as he expected, the architecture was as he expected. So he went to a park and he wrote about how he was sitting there smoking a cigarette, of course, watching an old man in a little Mongol cap, as he wrote, top grafting a plum tree. He sat watching this man and realized as he was doing so that this man was grafting the tree in a way that was very different from the way that he remembered his father grafting apple trees in their back garden in their house in Southwest 11 in London. So he thought, I wonder if Chinese fruit grafting techniques are different from ours. Maybe I can ask this fellow the first conversation he ever had with any Chinese person other than Gui Jin. He went up to him and started talking to him and lo and behold, this man could understand him and he could understand the man's replies. And so they had a conversation of half an hour about grafting techniques. And then he became really excited about this and went back to the Department of Botany at the University of Kunming or at the University from Shanghai that was a refugee university in Kunming and started doing some research on documents that he could read perfectly well because of his knowledge of written Chinese. And then he sent, using the diplomatic telegraph service, cables to London and Oxford and Cambridge and various other centers of botanical ex excellence and was able to prove incontrovertibly within a week that Chinese fruit grafting techniques had been invented at least six centuries before the earliest record of fruit grafting in ancient Greece. And he thought, my God, he said, Guijian is right. It is possible if I bend myself assiduously to this research that I can find out what the Chinese have invented first, what the history of their science has been. And I dare say, I will possibly find out what Guijian has insisted I would find out, which was that the Chinese beat us to it in all manners of science and technology. 
And so this is what he then decided to do. He went up to the capital, he went up to, to Chongqing, presented himself to the ambassador, was given a beaten down Chevrolet ambulance and a couple of assistants, and started making a series of the most extraordinary journeys all over unoccupied China. And he went from Chongqing up into the deserts of the northwest, he went down to the Burmese border in the south, he went very particularly dangerous journey to Fuzhou on the southeast coast, very, very nearly getting captured by the Japanese, and all the time doing what he was officially there to do, which was to find out what Chinese universities needed, sending telegrams of their needs back to London, and sure enough, what they needed started arriving in boxes at Calcutta docks and was indeed put on the planes for Kunming, but at the same time, looking for evidence, firm evidence, of things that the Chinese had invented before they had been invented in the West. And it became a labor of love for him, but also an extraordinary series of revelations, because one after another, things that he assumed had been Western turned out not to be Western at all, but Chinese. The classic example is, um, is that famous remark by uh, Francis Bacon that the three things that most defined uh, contemporary civilization were were gunpowder, uh, printing, and the use of the compass. Well, it was assumed at that point that gunpowder was, although it was known that the Chinese had experimented with it, the, the, the use of gunpowder for belligerent purposes was almost certainly a Western thing, 11th or 12th century. Similarly, the, the compass, probably a Levantine invention, 11th or 12th century, and printing, well, we all knew about Caxton and Gutenberg, that was obviously 15th century. Well, in all three of those areas, Needham was able to show, without a shadow of doubt, that the Chinese, fragmentation bombs and grenades, 8th century AD. The use of the compass, admittedly south-pointing rather than north-pointing, in the East China Sea, 9th century AD. And uh, printing, well, block printing, the oldest printed book in the world, uh, found in the caves in Dunhuang in, in western China. He was supposed to take a month to go there. It took him seven months. He had the most terrible, uh, disastrous adventures getting there. 868 AD, 650 years before printing appeared in the west, was known in, in China. And one after another, it, he was able to show that the Chinese blast furnaces, early techniques of producing, not particularly good, but producing a kind of steel, uh, wheelbarrows, um, chains, suspension bridges. I mean, just an amazing range of things. Toilet paper, for heaven's sake. I mean, I suppose if we think about toilet paper, we assume it was probably a Victorian invention and probably British. Not at all. It turns out he was able to show records of sheets of soft, perfumed paper for this particular purpose, produced rather oddly in sheets two feet by three, but <laughs> also smaller, six inches by four, for the somewhat more delicately shaped posteriors of the Beijing aristocracy, were on sale in, in 1340. So he began this list, which is included at the, in an appendix in, in my book, but it's copied from volume seven, part two of his book, um, was three or four, nearly just over 300 
items long. They were producing inventions at the rate of 15 serious civilization-enhancing inventions a century uh, back in the 5th and 6th centuries AD. But, and this began to trouble Needham as he continued his researches, if they were so clever so early, and if they had created so much so early on in human civilization, what happened? Why did they stop? Why in the 16th century did everything suddenly seem to shudder to a halt? And why did the whole energy of technological innovation shift from China to the West? What happened? China seemed to have, he could prove, have, there, there was a Chinese Archimedes, there was a Chinese Euclid, but there was never to be a Chinese Copernicus or a Chinese Galileo or a Chinese Einstein. Why was this? This question, which troubled him at exactly the same time as he was amassing this great list, has since become known as the Needham question. Well, the war wore on, and by 1945, Peking had been liberated, so he was able to go and continue his researches in eastern, northeastern China, but then he was ordered to return home. The mission, the mission was done. He was to go back to Cambridge, but in fact, he went first of all to Paris for two years because uh, Julian Huxley asked him to help found UNESCO with him. And interestingly enough, Huxley had initially planned this body to be called UNICO, the United Nations Educational and Cultural Organization, but Joseph Needham argued passionately in support of his belief that science belonged to humankind as a whole, so persuaded Huxley that science should be included as well. So if for no other reason, Needham will always be remembered as the man who put the S in UNESCO. He eventually got back to, to Cambridge in 1948, back to his rooms, which had remained waiting for him, K1, and uh, wrote to, to Cambridge University Press, saying, I've got an idea for a book, which I want to call Science and Civilization in China. It's about the origins of science and technology there, and I think I can do it in one volume, and it should take me about two years. Well, rather like James Murray and the OED, he grotesquely underestimated the amount of work involved. Six months later, he was writing to Cambridge and saying, well, perhaps not one volume, perhaps three. And then a year later, well, perhaps not three, maybe five, then seven, seven, but perhaps volume four can be divided into three parts or maybe five parts. Anyway, the first volume came out in 1954. By that time, and I don't think I probably, I don't think I'm gonna have enough time to tell you the story, but he had got into terrible, terrible hot water politically. Um, he was very worried that it wouldn't be well-reviewed, but in fact it was astonishingly well-reviewed, and it gave him the energy that was necessary to go on with this project. And by the time he died in 1995, he had completed 17 volumes, 3 million words, the longest book in the English language devoted to China ever written and unarguably a book which changed the Western view of China. No longer, once people, once the academic community 
had filtered this book and it had disseminated into the general public, no longer did anyone think of China as being this booby nation. It was a country that was not to be regarded with disdain anymore, but was to be regarded as it is today, with awe, admiration, respect, and, and no little amount of fear. And I want to sort of wind this up just by uh, offering two sort of personal stories, if I may. Uh, the first, uh, what happened to his personal life, his marriage? Well, Dorothy Needham was the archetype of the, the complacent wife. She accepted Guizhen's presence with total equanimity. The three of them would go around Cambridge together. They were known as the Needhams. And um, Dorothy eventually died in 1987, having produced one book on the mechanics of or the biochemistry of muscle movement. She died. He then married Lu Guizhen, who had been waiting patiently in the wings for 51 years. They married in Key's Chapel again. He did not say anything about this will be a thoroughly modern marriage. But she wasn't well at all, and she actually died in 1989. Just, I think their marriage lasted for 800 days, that's all. Whereupon the old goat then wrote three further letters to three other women that he knew, saying, I'm now available again. <laughs> but very sensibly, they, they turned him down, and he lived out the remainder of his years as a bachelor. He was given the Order of Merit by the Queen in 1992, which is the greatest civilian honor that uh, the monarch can bestow. And then he died peacefully uh, in, in Cambridge, having worked on volume uh, seven, part two, the day before in March uh, 1995. The other story I think will illustrate uh, two things about Needham. First of all, even though he's not terribly well known here, and oddly enough, not at all well-known in Britain. He's tremendously well-known in China. His name in Chinese is Li Yusu, and most educated Chinese, as I'll demonstrate, um, know who he is. But also this little story um, indicates, is an illustration anyway, of what Needham believed firmly, which is that China's rise to world primacy now was inevitable and unstoppable. About three years ago now, um, my wife, who's a radio producer for NPR, uh, had a flat in, in Washington, D.C., and we were down there um, winter's night, and she had a program the following morning, so we decided neither to uh, eat out or to uh, cook ourselves, but we would send out for food, and the obvious thing to send out for is Chinese food, and she particularly liked a restaurant on Connecticut Avenue called Mr. Chen's Organic Chinese Restaurant, which seems something of a contradiction in terms, but nonetheless, that's what it was called. So we dialed Mr. Chen's and ordered the standard thing you order, and we were told it would be there in 45 minutes at half past eight, and sure enough, at half past eight, doorbell rang, small Chinese man, two plastic bags, and then we realized to our dismay, chagrin, and embarrassment that we didn't have any money or didn't have enough. Anyway, I think the bill was $40 and we had seven. But he was very relaxed and he said, don't worry, there's an ATM down in the street. 
I'll leave the food here. So he left the food and I got my ATM card and went down the corridor with him to the lift and pressed the button and it wouldn't come for some peculiar mechanical reason. So I had to talk to him and I said, oh, where are you from? And he said, Shanghai, and I knew Shanghai reasonably well, so we talked a bit about Shanghai. And then I kept on pressing the button and it wouldn't come and it wouldn't come. And then I'm sort of scuffing you know, the carpet and looking at my shoes and whistling tunelessly. And then I suddenly remembered what I was writing about. So I said, oh, you might be interested. I'm writing a book about Joseph Needham. And he looked completely uninterested in this revelation. But mercifully, I remembered his Chinese name. And I said, Li Yu Sir. And he came alive. He said, you're writing a book about Li Yu Sir? And I was astonished. And I said, you mean you know? Of course I know who he is. Every educated Chinese knows who Li Yu-Su is. Of course, he was the Englishman. He wrote the greatest Englishman ever lived in China. He wrote this amazing series of books. I said, my God, I said, I want to have you stuffed and mounted. I mean, you're the, the one person that will probably buy my book. This is wonderful. <laughs> I said, back in the flat, I've got pictures and letters and diaries. Would you? Yes, I'd love to. So I brought him back to the apartment with my wife somewhat surprised that instead of readying myself to eat I'd come back with the delivery man and I said this man knows Liu Sir and so we sat down for five minutes and I'm showing him things and my wife says you know I think actually he'd just like his money he's just being polite <laughs> and I said yes I'm, I'm being thoughtless of course you're right so I I said okay let's go and we went back down the corridor and this time the lift did come we went down to the ground floor went to the ATM, got out the money, paid him, gave him a tip, and I told him the book, coming out next May, go to your next, you know, your Barnes & Noble or something, and I, really nice to meet you, I'm delighted you knew Liu Sir, goodbye, and shook his hand, and that was end of story. Well, I walked back to the apartment, but as I walked back, I could hear footsteps behind me. So Washington being Washington, I was a bit nervous, so I looked over my shoulder, and it was the delivery guy walking in lockstep five or six paces behind me because clearly he had parked his bike or his car um, near the entrance to the apartment. So I said, um, you know, even though the conversation had finished officially, it seemed churlish not to continue. So I, I said, um, by the way, when you lived in Shanghai, what job did you have? And he said, oh, I used to work in the computer department of the Standard Chartered Bank. Well, I knew one very small and trivial fact about the Standard Chartered Bank in Shanghai, that it used to be a Scottish bank called Macaulay's Bank and is known colloquially as Macaulay Bank. So I said, oh, Macaulay Bank. And he stopped dead still in the middle of Columbia Road, this man, and looked at me, fixed me with this strange expression, turned his head to one side and said, Simon? And I looked at him and I said, Gordon? <laughs> well, it turned out I'd made a film about this man 20 years before. We were doing a series of films. We were hugging each other in the street, remembering all of this. But 20 years before, in 1987, I'd been commissioned by the BBC to do 10 films, one a year, on the last 10 years of British Hong Kong. And one of the devices we used was we took a banker in Hong Kong, Standard Chartered Bank, who was a typical Hong Kong banker. You know, he lived in Repulse Bay, he drove a BMW, had a wife that looked like a model, he took holidays in Phuket and places like that. 
And his opposite number in Shanghai, this man, Gordon, Choi Guo Hong, lived in a fifth floor walk up, filthy with coal dust, cabbages at the bottom of the stairs. Wife put valves into a radio set assembly line, rusty old bike in the, in the hall. We filmed him and the idea was to watch the lives of these two bankers year by year slowly converge as Hong Kong readied itself to be handed back to China. So as I remembered hugging him, I filmed him in 87. In 88, he asked to come and visit his opposite number. He'd never been to Hong Kong, so we got him a visa and brought him down to see his opposite number in, in Hong Kong. And then in 89, he said to me that in his view, the future of the world lay in America. And what he wanted to do was to read for a PhD in America. So after a long argy-bargy, um, I sponsored his visa application. I paid his first semester's tuition at Drexel University in Philadelphia. And I put him on a plane, Northwest Airlines at Hongqiao Airport. From Shanghai, he paid for the ticket to Minneapolis with a connection to Philadelphia. And I never saw him again until 20 years later. Here he is delivering Chinese food. So naturally, I took him back up to the apartment again. <laughs> My wife, really astonished. I said, this is an old friend of mine. But he was very sensitive. He said, look, and he, was, he rang his wife and he was in tears. And he said, I imagine you've got a lot of questions to ask. But I tell you what, we'll take you out to dinner on Saturday. And so that's what happened. The following Saturday, he picked us up, took us to this restaurant in Chinatown in Washington and told us what had happened, which was that he had indeed got his PhD. He had taken advantage of a Canadian government system which gave almost instant citizenship to Chinese PhD students, moved to, Cat to Toronto, brought his wife over from Shanghai, got a job with General Motors of Canada, and became Canadian citizens. Then in 1999, he got a job at the Raytheon Corporation in Rockville, Maryland, working on a protocol for a very secret communications program, was he was a very good computer person. September the 11th, 2001, all non-American citizens were summarily dismissed. But because he had Oracle and Microsoft qualifications, he was allowed to stay on in America as a consultant. And so during that period, his view, his worldview changed. No longer did he think that America was necessarily the number one country to be. He thought now he was simply an, another, an anonymous Chinese in Washington. But if he could earn enough money to go back to Shanghai, his hometown, with an American PhD degree, with the English language and with money in his pocket, he would have status and standing in the community and could help propel China to the future that he thought it deserved. So his routine from that moment on became unvarying. He would work all day as a consultant. And at five o'clock, he would pick his wife up from where she worked. They would have dinner together in Rockville. And then he would get into his car with all his books and homework for the next day, drive down Connecticut Avenue, park outside the restaurant that belonged to his friend, Mr. Chen's Organic. And if every half hour, Mr. Chen would come out with two plastic bags and say, please deliver those to 
1851 Columbia Road, Northwest, apartment 502. Well, it was another $10 in tips, maybe if he was lucky, which would enable him to add to the kitty that would help him to get back to the country that Joseph Needham had predicted and which he firmly thought was the country that would soon be number one in the world, and that was his country, China. Thank you very much. Um, thank you very much indeed for that, and I, I'm more than happy if I can answer any questions, I'd be delighted to try. There are people who, with microphones, I think, ah, sir. Thanks, Simon, for coming. It's great to have you here. Thank uh, you. Just a quick, quick question. Um, what do you think, personally, can you give some more shape to what you think the future holds, uh, you know, for China vis-a-vis -vis the rest of the world? Well, you think of your, you know, from, based on your research. It's less research, I think, than just a, a gut feeling. I think I'm guided by a sign, I actually mention it at the end of the book, outside the Chinese Space Center, which is at a place called Shintan in, uh, in, in Western China, not too far from Dunhuang. Um, you, you can't go without uh, crawling over lots of bureaucratic hurdles into the, but you can, see the amazing city that's been built in the middle of nowhere uh, to support the workers. Then the road that leads to the launch complex, there's an enormous poster um, extolling, you know, the, this astronaut and that astronaut and that rocket. But at, at the bottom, in English, is written this, these sentences or words. Without haste, without fear, we shall conquer the world. And I think they have no thought that they mean militarily. But they simply mean that the Chinese ethic is going to work its way into the fabric of the world. And I think that's no bad thing, at least as a counter to the McDonaldization of the world or the Sarah Palinization of the world. <laughs> I, I don't mind Confucius and I don't mind uh, some of the things that China can give us. So her influence is... There's just no doubt about it in my mind at all. That they, it's the country, not just the economic giant. I think Chinese influence is going to become huge. You mentioned that um, Needham wondered what had become of China's early greatness, and I missed what he decided that was. Well, um, I think if I, if I can, s what I'm thinking or asking is, is let's say the Needham question: Why? Why did everything evaporate? There have been so many PhD theses written around the world to try and answer the Needham question, and they're very convoluted and complex arguments. Mainly, not so much examining China's failure, so-called, but the success of, of the West, of, of how the energy of Renaissance Europe produced technological change in a way that the relative stability of 16th century China did not. But quite honestly, I, my own feeling, and I, I wish I were able to ask this of Needham himself, is that ever since Deng Xiaoping made that speech to get riches glorious and made it clear that China was going to be unleashed from 
from the old Stalinist restrictions of early Maoism and, and Soviet life. Um, energy has flowed back particularly into Chinese universities, which are now brimming with brains and money and ambition. And all of a sudden, everything has changed in terms of Chinese technological advances. I mean, China is now, I think, the third, if not jockeying, to become the second most, I don't quite know how to say this, but it, uh, it applies for more patents successfully in the world than any country bar the United States. It's soon going to overtake. More inventions are going to be made in, in China than anywhere else in the world. And it seems to me that, yes, for all sorts of reasons, China fell off a cliff in 1600 or so. But she crawled back up 1984. And in the great sweep of Chinese history, that's only 400 years. In the 5,000 years of recorded accepted history, that's less than 10%. A little blip on the radar screen. So I, don't, I think it was merely a pause. And I think, therefore, the Needham question, while of some academic interest, and I mean no disrespect to members of the academy here, it's sort of moot because China is back inventing as happily and as energetically as she did 10 centuries ago. Sir. <laughs> well, a comment and a question. The comment is, um, you said the Needham's book uh, changed the West perception of China. I think practically each issue when his volume was uh, published, there were great dispute about its findings. People disagree, people belittle it, and including some scholars from this university. So I think that, uh, I don't know how about today, you know, many years has gone by. So I think that it's uh, at least, to me, it's not a closed book, it's, it's an answered question. And my question is, uh, <clears throat> it's related to this, is um, um, he has written these many volumes. In your view, what is one or two subject he has truly made substantial, insightful contributions? I really don't know where to begin. I mean, first of all, to say, of course there's been carping, of course there's been criticism. I mean, one expects that, and, but with the almost single exception of the debate over the origin of water clocks, very little progress, very little has been done to dent the overall reception of these books. I think you'll agree. I don't think any one of them, I, his devotion of three volumes to the spagyrical arts, alchemy was a ridiculous. I mean, Needham went crazy in the 1960s. So there was a sort of pointless diversion. But that aside, in almost every field, I mean, the latest volume on, or not the latest, the, la the metallurgy was the latest, but his volume on ceramics, for instance, there can be no better history of the development of ceramics in the world than Needham's. And I think in almost every area, biological sciences, medical sciences is a little wanting, it has to be said. Chi his discussions of Chinese anatomy are fairly limited, but this volume, for instance, 
on the history of Chinese nautics, civil engineering. It, it, it seems to me peerless. Um, so I mean that in almost every area. My, one of my children is in the, the drinks industry. There's half a volume devoted to alcohol and China's relationship with alcohol. It's once, well, to use the word I used earlier on, biblical in its authority, as far as my 40-year-old son is concerned. Do you not think it's a remarkable achievement? Yes, yeah. In that, you can see this case, not a world record. And he was the first in the country. And of course, the debate about Confucianism and Taoism and their attitudes towards science, believing that Confucianism was largely inimical to scientific development, whereas Taoism was not. So on many levels, I, I, well, this is perhaps a debate which is not going to be enormously interesting to everybody else, but... Uh, a major achievement. Ma'am. Could you say something briefly about the political problem that Needham had, I think, in the 1950s? Yes, I, I'm, I'm more than happy to. I, I just don't want to keep you from going to your, your homes. But basically, in 1953, uh, he had returned. Essentially, Joe and Lai said, we'd like you, Joseph, to come back to China to head a commission of distinguished scientists to investigate what we charge, which is that the Americans have been using biological weapons in the Korean War. And Needham was delighted to go because he could see all his old friends. And so he went and spent six months in China and wrote a report. He went with seven other scientists and wrote a report under his signature which said incontrovertibly that the Americans were guilty of using biological weapons, dropping rice cakes infected with anthrax or tularemia or whatever. He was excoriated like you wouldn't believe. The British Foreign Office set up a unit to do everything it could to, to denounce him and ruin his reputation. The Royal Society, of which he was a fellow, nearly threw him out. His college even... It's very difficult to get thrown out of an Oxford or Cambridge college. Co considered, excuse me, throwing him out. And perhaps most seriously of all, he was banned from coming to the United States. This was, of course, the time of McCarthyism. Well, there's a coda to all of this in that in 1978, the ban went on for a long time, 25 years. So Needham, by this time, had written many volumes of the book, was the master of Keyes College, Cambridge, recipient of awards all over the world, offered awards by American universities, but not until 1978 was he allowed to come in and accept them. And he finally came in in April 1978 
to receive an honorary degree from the University of Chicago. And he was asked, as part of the process of getting this, to give three speeches. And the second of the speeches was on early Chinese weaponry that employed gunpowder. And in the audience was a young mathematician called Ted Kaczynski. And just six weeks after the lecture, using, as he has now admitted, the designs that Needham drew on his blackboard there, Kaczynski created the first bomb that he sent to a professor which was intercepted by a security guard who lost his arm in the explosion and he began his career as the Unabomber. So some argue, of course, it might have been better if the ban had remained in place and the Unabomber would have expended its energies somewhere else. But yes, it was a major, major setback to his career. Although he had just written the report and the campaign of vilification and the American ban had just been put in place when volume one came out. So he was gratified that the reception of that volume was good despite his problems. But he had problems and they lasted for a long time. And of course the debate continues about whether the Americans did such a thing. But most people now seem to think that they did not. And that Needham was the unfortunate victim, not of a Chinese, cunning Chinese plot, but of a very devious and complicated plot organized by the KGB in Moscow, which I write about in the book at some length, but it is rather complex, too complex to go into here. Normally I would not ask such an unrelated question, but I think that you'll answer it anyway. <laughs> um, so you've talked about Joseph Needham's um, relative lack of general fame in, say, the United States or the United Kingdom, and yet he's someone who's widely recognized in China. And it strikes me that there's something there about uh, Needham being a figure of affirmation in, in representing a view in the West that there's greatness in China. And so there's this iconic the idea that, well, he, here's a guy in the West who understands that we're great and understands that something we've done. And it made me think about how figures are, are perceived in their country and outside their country. And I'll give you another example from, uh, from a country I think you know well. I was once looking at a list of top 100 Britons of all time, and I knew them all, you know, Winston Churchill, you know, Alfred the Great, Lady Diana, you know, they're, they're all there. Um, uh, but I looked and there was this one guy, Isambard Kingdom Brunel, and I didn't know who that guy was. Okay, and this is someone who's regarded as one of the greatest Britons of all time because of the things that he did for Great Britain. And I was just wondering, since you've, now that you've lived in the United States for a long time, this is a crazy question, who in the United States is really well recognized in the U.S. but just not really thought of outside the U.S.? Uh, you see what I'm getting at? Well, I do. I mean, I, I'm surprised that you didn't know Brunel, I must say. I mean, he, the BBC did a poll. Brunel was the second most popular man in history. Uh, every Briton knows Brunel. Americans don't know who Brunel is. All oh, right, I'm so sorry. Well, <laughs> yes, uh, I assure you that most Americans do not know who Brunel is. My, well, I, please, I, my, um, my candidate, a chap I very much wanted to write a book about, actually, was a, a fellow called Adolphus Washington Greeley, who, I don't know, does anyone know who Adolphus Washington Greeley is? He was a, a big, no, no, he wasn't the Greeley of Go West young man. 
no, no, that was another chap spelt slightly differently as well, but no, Adolphus Washington Greeley was, um, he was an American soldier injured during the Civil War, um, appointed to head an expedition which went to Ellesmere Island in the 1870s as a scientific expedition, um, 25 men. Um, they were to winter, overwinter, and then they would be picked up the following summer. But the following summer, the American government had forgotten about them. <laughs> so there was an election on, I think, in the United States, and so that took top billing. So they had a backup plan. There was a cache of food about 200 miles away, so they sledded down to it, overwintered for a second winter, and then um, the, the government didn't come the next year either. So then they were starting to get into serious trouble. And finally, Mrs. Greeley, who was an early figure in the American suffragette movement, went to London, pleaded with the Royal Navy, and they said, yes, we'll send an expedition. On hearing this, the Department of the Navy in Washington said, no, no, we can't possibly have the Brits you know, playing an ace card. We will. And they sent, very late in the season, a boat. And they went up the Kennedy Canal between Greenland and Ellesmere Island and found nothing except as they were heading back south again, they saw what appeared to be some rags on the starboard side, on the, on the Greenland side, put out a whaler, found a tent with six emaciated men in it, and Greeley was one of them, and he staggered out and saluted, and he said, Lieutenant Adolphus W. Greeley, reporting for duty, but there were 19 shallow graves of the men who had expired. Um, which were then dug up and put in coffins and brought back on the boat. The boat went down to St. John's in Newfoundland, where the message, Greeley is alive, was telegraphed across the United States. There was tremendous um, thanksgiving and delight and church bells ringing and all that sort of thing. Then when the ship stopped in Boston, a New York Times reporter got on board, so there is a New York Times. This was at the time when the Times was in vicious the competition with the Hearst newspapers and yellow journalism was raising its head. And based on very little evidence, he said, the Times reporter said that the Greeley expedition had not only employed cannibalism as a way of surviving, but had in fact shot one man to provide meat. And this was a sensational revelation. And by the time the party got to New York City, um, Greeley's reputation had changed from being a hero to that of a pariah and the Madison Avenue hostesses that were going to invite him to glittering dinners balked at the idea lest their frailer companions at dinner table might be wolfed down by this clearly ghastly man. And so his reputation plummeted, but he then went on and did some rather good things. He, he put down but bloodlessly the last uh, Indian rising in, in Utah or maybe it was Idaho. He was the officer in charge of relief operations at the San Francisco earthquake in 1906. He laid most of the, he was a signals officer, he laid most of the signaling equipment across the United States and China, uh, and southern China and Cuba indeed, and gradually uh, uh, was one of the four founders of the National Geographic magazine, the yellow book that you know so well. And then finally, in 1935, still laboring under the reputation of being a, a cannibal and a killer, uh, was restored 
to official glory and uh, was presented the, uh, the Congressional Medal of Honor or one of these great American honors. He was a very frail man by now and a horse-drawn carriage brought it down from the Capitol. There was a ceremony outside his house in Georgetown and he died six months later. So I think that, I, I love the idea of reviving forgotten figures from history. In your case, Isambard Kingdom Brunel, who we know about, and apparently so does this audience, or some of them anyway, uh, and people like Greeley, who I think is a truly great man, but completely forgotten. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> Excuse me. One more question. Something more ceremonious <laughs> but, uh, to add to your pile well, of Thank you very much indeed.